and welcome back to another episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. In case you didn't know, Ben is gone for the month because he is getting married and then going on his honeymoon. So say goodbye to Ben. You're stuck with me for the rest of these season team previews. And up next, we have a team that was one of my favorites last year, my kind of hipster choice for the team I rooted for, the Charlotte Hornets. And joining us, we have Chris Barnwall. He's uh, an editor at At The Hive, really fun Twitter follow as well. We'll talk a little bit about what happened last year. Why were they so surprising? Why did they confound everyone? Whether they can keep this up, you know, how good Kemba Walker is. And oh, by the way, they have a pretty key addition coming back from injury in Michael K. Gilchrist. So really interesting team. Before you do anything, though, do ask for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a nice review or a mean review if you really want, but I think we're doing pretty well. We take all of your constructive criticism. It helps us get up in the rankings. We really like to hear how you think the show is doing. Do you enjoy this team? these team previews that we've been rolling out over the last couple months? What do you want to see for the season? It's almost here. You can also follow us on Twitter at limited underscore upside and do send us your questions, whether it's about any team in particular or about another topic in general. You can always email me at MikePreda at SBNation.com. You can hit us up on Twitter again at limited underscore upside. You have a question, we ask them, you know, every single show. They help dictate what we want to talk about. We get you in, so your voice will be heard. Anyway, sit back and enjoy the latest episode in our team preview. It's the Charlotte Hornets. It's Chris Barnwall of At the Hive on the Limited Upside Podcast. All right, the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, We've got Chris Barnwell from At The Hive joining us. And Chris, that last season kind of exceeded your wildest imaginations for how good they were going to be, right? Oh, definitely. I don't think anyone thought they were going to be that good. No, they were 48 and 34. Point differential, I believe, was even better than that. They do that despite Michael K. Gilchrist being out the whole season. And they nearly win a first-round playoff series. So I guess the first thing to kind of take a step back and wonder about is why did they play so well last year when I think a lot of us, myself included, were pegging them really for the bottom of the Eastern Conference? I mean, I think the reason they surprised was more because everyone was kind of bullish on their um, offseason acquisitions last year. They made a lot of short-term move or moves that kind of were perceived as short-term. They traded a lottery pick for Spencer Haas. They, they've they paid for a lot of short-term guys. They got Jeremy Lamb in there, which isn't always the best idea. So it kind of seemed like they weren't really making correct moves to towards winning. And then when Kid Gokers went down, it's like, oh, well, now everything's ruined. Like, yeah, they got Batum in there. And then they came out there and they played this brand new offensive style that was completely unlike anything we'd seen from them before with so many three-pointers. And the defense was just as good as ever. And when they had the defense with a much improved offense, it just it all came together for them. And they were actually able to like win games and have their best season ever since the team came back in 2004. Yeah, I remember watching him in the preseason last year and all the three-pointers they were launching and thinking, oh, okay, this is cute. Let's see right, what happens when, when, the, uh, when the actual games begin. Like Cody Zeller shooting things, okay, that's, that's really cute. That's preseason. And then they kept doing it. And it was really a profound offensive transformation because the previous year was just such a clogged toilet of an offense. I think they were 
maybe the worst offense in the league the previous year, like way up there. And second, second, third. They were one of the worst. They were unwatchable that year. And then they, you sub in Lance Stevenson for Nick Batum, and you kind of empower a few other players. And suddenly, you know, as as a Wizards fan, they kind of the Hornets kind of became my second team in a lot of ways because I was jealous of them. I was they did exactly what the Wizards wanted to do. They totally changed their style. So, why I talked, I remember I talked to a lot of their people. Talk to Steve Clifford about this in March about what they were doing, but why do you think they were able to sort of change up that old style of play when some of the other teams that wanted to couldn't? Part of it is just because Steve Clifford's a genius. Like, let's just get out <laughs> that out there. Like, you use the Wizards as an example. Randy Whitman's always been a weird case where he's not a great coach, but he was probably also re- probably ragged on a little too much. And Steve Clifford, on the other hand, is just probably one of the five to seven best coaches in the NBA by far and can just get guys to play a certain way. He can really implement these players into his system. Then he had Marvin Williams out there making three pointers. Kimball Walker's jump shot improved a lot, which that was huge for them. Yeah. Um, they actually got uh, part of why it improved as much was mainly because of Nicholas Batum though. But even then Walker was still hitting the shots and when they hit the shots, just things open up for them. And really, honestly, the biggest addition, in my opinion, was Nicholas Batum. I think he made that entire team function. Yeah, I, I think that was a really key, a huge key for them. Is a, a lot of people looked at that trade and said, "Well, he's going to leave next year, and you're giving up a you're giving up on your 19 year old big man lottery pick in Noah Vonleh." Uh, but what ended up happening is that it just in the past there was Kemba Walker having to do everything. Absolutely everything. Nobody else really was able to sort of function in tandem with him. I know they they tried to get Lance Stevenson. That was the idea to get more playmaking. Instead, Lance kind of held the ball and couldn't shoot and you could sag off him and all sorts of things. Nick Batum had, I think, struck the perfect balance between, you know, this is a guy that can handle some some ball handling so you can give the ball up and get it back for, for Kemba. He can catch it on the move and attack, but he can also sort of function in the background and let Kemba handle the ball. It was it really was kind of a perfect glue fit right there, and I think that was a huge key to, yeah, Walker made some improvements on his own, no doubt. You know, he changed the form on his jumper. That was a big thing that they talked about. Uh, he was much more decisive, I think much more in line looking at being efficient and not just putting up a lot of shots. But all that was made so much easier because they had just another player to take the pressure off him in Nick Batum, someone who could shoot the ball from range, who can make plays on pick and roll, who could also work off screens. Just the versatility he provided, I think, was just a huge boon to the rest of the team. Right, and Walker isn't really a guy. He's he's a little divisive among NBA circles because a lot of guys see him as just this inefficient player. He doesn't really shoot very well, especially without Batum. Funny enough, um, last year, Walker, without Batum on the floor, shot uh, 28% from three-point range. Which oh, yeah? Is not, <laughs> yeah, it was it was really bad. That is interesting. But it was also, it's also worth mentioning that he only played – he only averaged, like, not very many minutes without him. Um, I'm trying – Ever since the NBA moved to this new stat side, I have a hard time reading it. But yeah, I'm reading it's this pretty as- rough. But, I mean, he played a little bit with Jeremy Lin when um, when Batum was on the bench. Uh, but you're saying that even that really the presence of Batum just totally opened up the his shooting percentage and opened up the floor. You know, that was something that I didn't really think about when a lot of people didn't really think about when the Batum acquisition happened. Uh, and you also saw it, I think, when they kind of were playing their worst was when Batum was struggling with injuries. So I agree. Oh, yeah, that's when they went through their really bad stretch in, uh, I want to say, February or January. Yeah, they really looked like they were kind of this cute little started faded. And a big part of it was no Batum. Um, but 
I guess that that there are other keys I think to the season. You know, I think we should talk about the play that Marvin Williams had, uh, the, his ability to shoot the ball. I think that gave him a lot of athleticism at the four spot that a lot of us really weren't envisioning. If we're looking at how they changed their style and played much more speedy and four out and all that, I mean, the linchpin there has definitely got to be Marvin Williams. He was a huge key to that. Oh, incredible! Like if. Batum and Walker were the key players that, you know, made the team as good as they were. Williams was like the X factor, for lack of a better word. He really did everything they needed. He could slide over to um, he could slide over and switch on defense if necessary, because he does have the ability to guard uh, threes. He can guard bigger guys at the four. He can shoot from three from he can shoot from three. He got real good at cutting last year, which is something in his first year in Charlotte. He wasn't really all that good at. He didn't really know where to cut. I wonder if that was a factor of the spacing but when they really added in um when you really add in all of his offensive improvements he actually made shots last year he just became this incredibly useful player for them which he wasn't in his first year in charlotte at all which is why he got paid this summer yeah well we'll get to this summer in a second but i think it's worth examining some more like what made that team so good i thought you talked about clifford a little bit and you know he how he was a genius and some of the stuff he did what struck me a lot about what they did is that everything that they were able to do offensively all their actions were just very crisp and fast and so they're just sometimes it's as simple as just getting the ball popping and getting bodies moving and I think a big key was just having the motion of that Batum offered off the ball was a real catalyst for that I think just having the athleticism of Williams was just so much higher he was just making quicker decisions that was a big key I think having Jeremy Lin, who is gone now, was a big key in the quick decisions he was able to make. You know, and they transitioned a little bit. I think it almost was a bit of a blessing in disguise, you know, to get Bill get for Al Jefferson to be injured for so long. So, you know, you look at the keys to the to their success. I I was surprised that, you know, Clifford's able to do that and every coach talks about doing these things, but yet Clifford was the one that was able to actually get his team to do it. You know, I it speaks really highly of his ability to communicate with the players, I think. That's one thing ever since he's arrived in Charlotte that he's been able to do better than very many coaches in the NBA. Uh, that first team he took to the playoffs in uh, 2013, his first year, he made Chris Douglas Roberts an NBA player. Like They brought him in off a waiver wire just as to, as roster space, and he became a rotation player by the end of the season. Uh, he made Al Jefferson become, for the, his entire career before um, Charlotte, he was just known as this dark hole kind of player that really couldn't be relied on, and he turned into this guy that, like, was a reliable team player. Like he passed the ball when necessary. He probably posted up a little more than people like, but it worked. And on defense, they were incredible with Al Jefferson on the floor, which is very difficult. And no one had been able to do before Clifford. So he just obviously has this respect among his players. They play hard for him and they really want to do what, and they always seem to play well for his teams. Courtney Lee was telling me back in March when I, I wrote about them that he was one of the most prepared coaches he's ever seen, uh, ever worked with. And Courtney Lee's been around a lot. Uh, so he's seen a lot of coaches and just, just the detail-oriented. And it's just every single cut seems really regimented, and yet it's still fluid. I mean, he hasn't really – he didn't really drill the fluidity out of that team. So, well, let's move to the summer then. So they, they end 48-34. and 34. They fight Charlotte. They fight Miami in that first round series. I thought they probably should have won that series. They they couldn't come away with it in Game Six. Uh, Dwayne Wade really went 
went nuts on them, and then they sort of ran out of gas. I think they had a lot of injured players. If they were fully healthy, I think they might have had a chance to win that. But alas, they didn't, and this summer it was always going to be a challenge to keep their entire team. You know, they had so many free agents. They had Batum was a free agent. Williams was a free agent. Jeremy Lin was a free agent. Courtney Lee, Al Jefferson. It was always going to be impossible for them to keep all of those players, and really probably not smart either, given how – well, all of them played and whether they all had career years. Do you think that they kept the right players? I think they kept the players they needed to keep. A lot of people have been very divisive on this topic because their bench was really good last year. And you know what? That's true. They had, they've had games last year where they relied on their bench and it carried them through. And their bench this year is really not going to be as good. But they had to keep Marvin Williams just based on the way he played last year and how he really, as we discussed earlier, how – when he's playing well, this entire system works. They have that perfect stretch for this perfect guy that can switch on defense. Really, they had to let Jeremy Lin go because he was going to make a lot more than I think they were willing to pay a guy who really was just going to be their backup point guard behind Kemba Walker. Right, and I believe they did not have the bird rights on him either, so they would have to have used cap space to keep him. Right, and they wanted to use that on Nicholas Batum, who – as I just went over, was the most important player on the team. Everyone got better on the floor when Batum played. And Al Jefferson, I think they wanted to keep him, and they weren't expecting Indiana to offer that third year. When Indiana came in with a third year, I don't think they really were just able to let it, to really give that to him. I think they wanted to, but they weren't willing to put that much money towards a guy who is questionable to be on the floor every year. And Courtney Lee's the weird one, because a lot of people have been – very adamant how good Courtney Lee is, and I really like Courtney Lee. He's a very good player. He's a very good defender, good shooter. But they spent a large majority of the last season starting P.J. Hairston. So as a big a loss as Courtney Lee is, I don't think it's the biggest loss in the world because they spent half of the season playing good basketball without him. So Courtney Lee was the one that, that I thought was is something worth debating because – they had his bird rights, and because they used the early bird exception to sign Marvin Williams, which I was surprised by, I thought he might go for even more than that, uh, because of that, they were able to free, they wouldn't have had to use cast space on him, so they, they wouldn't have had to renounce Courtney Lee, I don't believe. I mean, the timing is a little confusing here, but they could have paid him his salary. Now, I'm not sure exactly where they are in relation to the luxury tax. Um, I'm also not sure that paying a 31-year-old player for a four-year deal like the Knicks did was smart. But when they got Courtney Lee to fill in at shooting guard, that team really took off. And Steve Clifford, I remember talking to him, he was really praised just some of the attention to detail that Lee had, his ability to close out. I think he's just a really solid all-around player. He played... Oh, he's really good. You can fit him on really any team, any NBA roster, and I think he played well there. Yeah, so they could have kept him. Instead, it appears that they were sort of resigned to losing him, so they instead traded that first-round pick to Sacramento for Marco Bellinelli, sort of filling that that role in the rotation. You know, that one I wasn't so wild about as a trade, um, but we'll see. I wasn't Bellinelli. either. Bellinelli can bounce back. He was in a pretty bad situation. I think he'll have a better year. So that's the one where maybe you look at it and say, yeah, I know four years for Courtney Lee might have been paying a lot, but it's just cap. It's just money. I don't know, again, where they were in relation to the tax, if that would have become a problem. Uh, the other thing to think about is I don't know where Courtney Lee would have played for this team because of the return of Kid Gilchrist. But I think they may, maybe will end up regretting that 
that decision. So instead, what they ended up doing is they use what that money would have been. They they traded for Bellinelli. They signed Ramon Sessions to back up point guard to replace Lynn, and then they took a flyer on Roy Hibbert. So, given the constraints that they had, I mean, do you think those were moves that will make sense? How are those guys going to fit in? I agree on uh, Courtney Lee being probably the most debatable loss of the summer because while I did say that it was a loss worth taking. It's still like if you want to if this appears to be the core they're going to go forward with, it's weird that you don't kind of just go all in now. That said, it doesn't always it, sometimes it doesn't hurt to go be a little cheap and look towards the future. Maybe they think they can get a better free agent in the future or maybe they want to spend some of that money elsewhere. I'm not exactly sure what their long term plans are there. We'll get to the long term plans. <laughs> right. As far as um, who they actually signed. I wasn't very thrilled with Bellinelli either. I don't think they never wanted the first round pick. No teams in that. A lot of people kind of uh, trash the trade, which fair in most years, a first round pick for Marco Bellinelli is absurd. But if you also look at a lot of teams past the 20th mark in the draft this year, they were all trying to get rid of that pick. No one wanted to be in there. Right. So I think they just didn't want to spend the guaranteed money. I mean, there is a big difference, though, between the 20th pick goes for Thaddeus Young and the 22nd pick goes for Marco Bellinelli. I think there's quite a difference in two picks right there. It wasn't the best value for the pick. It's more – trading the pick was fine. The value they got for the pick's a little weird, but – Well, I guess they look at it as, okay, Bellinelli is now their backup too. So when they need more shooting, uh, when Kid Gilchrist's shot really is a problem, they can put him in. Bellinelli had a terrible year last year, but he was in a really bad situation. He's proven that if he's in a strong – locker room culture like the Spurs he can produce and help you and his contract is what two more years at about seven million per I can sort of see why they may say okay if we get Marco Bellinelli to fill the spot that Courtney Lee was going to fill he's not as good a player probably not I mean the difference in salary was about it's about a little over half maybe 60 percent in salary for half the years and we then can kind of afford to fill our backup point guard and sign Roy Hibbert to give us some rim protection that we didn't have last year. I can see defensively where that makes sense. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, it's a little un- unfortunate that they feel like they have to spend that sort of money on uh, Bellinelli when they have Jeremy Lamb la- lying around and Steve Clifford doesn't want to use him, but that's sort of a, <laughs> a whole separate issue. So I, I can kind of see where they're coming from there. And I, I like the, I think I kind of like the sessions in Hibbert. So I think Hibbert, especially, this is a good chance for him to have a bounce back year. I think he'll, you saw what Clifford did with Jefferson two years ago uh, and kind of allowing him to stay in the paint and not worrying as much about having him come out. I think you could see a similar thing happening with Hibbert this year. I think that was a good buy-low candidate. I agree on that. I think if anyone's going to revive Roy Hibbert's career, it's going to be Steve Clifford. And really, before L.A., Hibbert was never terrible in Indiana. He didn't put up numbers, which kind of bothered a lot of people, but personally, I never thought he was awful. Obviously, the NBA kind of moved past that that slow, traditional center, but... Yeah, I think there's still a place for players like that when you have a system that works. And Charlotte obviously had a system that worked for Al Jefferson. I haven't really seen as much of Sessions as I'd like to say. I saw him a lot when he was initially in Charlotte. Uh, you watched Washington. It's, yeah. I heard he got a little – he played a little better last year. Yeah, I thought he was actually a lot, a little better than I expected when they got him. You know, he's – He's not a great defender, and it's he's going to miss some of the most annoying layups ever. He'll just there's you can almost kind of play sort of a spin the wheel with like whether he's going to make the layup or not. But he's a good ball handler. He really gets to the rack. He gets early 
buckets in transition. I think on a second unit where you're kind of just trying to tread water, that's those are good qualities to have. And so I look at the backup point guard market. I think they did just fine there, and I think it helps as well that he has played for Clifford before and has that relationship. I don't expect him, if he's playing more than sort of the minutes that Kemba isn't playing, then I think the Hornets have a problem. But to fill that role, again, considering what Lynn got and how unrealistic it was to have Lynn, and also just kind of having the flexibility to play two ball handler lineups. And you saw that a little bit in Washington with, with John Wall. I think they did fine there. You know, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by what I saw from Sessions as a backup while he was here. I was not expecting very much. All right, that's a promising because he's obviously not as good a player as Lynn, but if he can play like a similar style, which Lynn last year did a lot of darting towards the paint, you know, trying to get towards the rim. And if he can, if Sessions can kind of replicate that to where they don't have to change the backup point guard role too much, that would be promising. I don't expect him to shoot as well, but if he can just, you know, create some chaos, I'm perfectly fine with that. That's a good segue into a topic that um, we've gotten. We got one question from our fan, our friend Lindy uh, at Bullets Forever asked this um, specifically with Kemba, but, you know, I've also had this question asked, a little bit of others, a lot of Hornets players played over their heads last year uh, oh, yeah. in terms of shooting percentage. Marvin Williams' shooting numbers were the best of his career and a big jump on, you know, he had one year in Atlanta where he shot 39% from three. But other than that, he's never been above 36%. So that's a big jump. But Toom is a player that played a little bit above his head shooting-wise. Uh, Kemba Walker, honestly, we'll see if this is a new normal him, for him or not. Um, we'll see if some of these other players uh, can can continue to keep this up. Do you think that we should reasonably think that, you know, expect a drop in shooting? Or do you think that, you know, this jump is not a regression and is instead for all these players caused by the system that Clifford has created? I think there might be slight drops here and there. I don't this I don't see Marvin Williams shooting 40% from 3 again, but I also don't see him falling below 36. I see him as a 38%, 37% three-point shooter, which is still really good in my opinion. Uh Batum, I think he's legitimate. I think the role he played is exactly fits his system perfectly. What I'm more concerned about with Batum is actually his health. He was uncharacteristically healthy last year and he did play in the Olympics this year, so I'm a little concerned with the uh, the wear and tear on him i hope he has a full healthy year because as we saw last year when he's not healthy the hornets just they're not as good a team kemba's the weird one i want to say i want to believe that last year was real i think he's definitely improved i think he'll he is a much better shooter than he was in years past but that said it's really hard to follow up a career year with another career year just i don't see him playing that well but that said i think he'll still be a pretty good player that's a good segue as well to a question, I believe, if I pronounce this wrong, please correct me. Christrick uh, Lunzingus is the Twitter handle. I think that's a Chris S. Porzingis pun. Anyway, <laughs> he asks, has Kemba Walker reached his ceiling uh, or what can he, will he do if he, to launch himself back into the upper echelon of point guards and, you know, make an all-star appearance? You know, do you think he's reached his ceiling? Oh, that's a really good question. Because the biggest knock on him is his entire career has always been his jump shot, right? Yeah. And I just, I can't see him becoming a better defender because just of physical limitations. He's always a smart defender, but physically I just can't see him getting any better. I guess if he does that kind of Jason Kidd thing where, you know, he keeps getting better at shooting as he gets older. But Jason Kidd was a Hall of Famer. Not, play, not very many players can do that. That's the only way I can see him continuing to improve. 
as far as making the all-star team, I think he can do that because we see the players as kind of like this linear thing. Well, players are much more sporadic. They have up years. They have down years. So I think we'll see is like there are going to be years where he plays like an all-star. He'll look like an all-star. He can he'll be shooting really well that season. And then there are going to be years where it's a little more disappointing. So I feel like he has kind of if he's not at his ceiling, he's getting close to there. But I don't think we're going to see any more dramatic jumps from him. If he were to make a jump, like what's the area you would like to see you think is realistic for him to improve? Playmaking probably, you know, become a 12 and 10 guy, you know, start shooting less, move the ball, focus on almost play like a better Rajon Rondo. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, just I've always been, I'm never one of those people that's been like, oh, Kemba shoots too much. He doesn't pass enough, blah, 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 because I think that's ridiculous and it all depends on the player system and what he plays in. But that said, he is always looking for his shot a little more than his pass. Maybe if he spent some a little bit more time looking for his pass and playmaking a little more, that might benefit him. I don't know for sure, because I'd have to see how that would fit into the system. So he averaged only a five assist game last year. He's never been an assist grabber. No, and some of this is sort of function, right? So that's sort of the value of having Batum there, is that Batum is much more of a distributor and he allows Kemba to kind of play as a scorer. So some of that is system-based, and it may not necessarily benefit the team as a whole for him to be a better playmaker. I'm trying to look up exactly what Kemba shot at the rim last year because, to me, though he was a much better jump shooter and he shot uh, 37% from three, that was a career high. He had never previously been above 33%, so that obviously is a big jump. But he also, I think, uh, did a really good job of finishing at the rim a lot better. And again, I'm looking up the stats right now. From In the restricted area last year, he was a 57% shooter. The previous year, uh, he was... Duh, 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 duh. I really should have these things like handy when I record this stuff, but uh, that's not how we roll. He was only a 49% restricted area shooter. So right there, that's a big jump, I think. And some of that is that he really worked on kind of twisting his angles and really taking the contact well. He didn't just kind of jump into guys willy-nilly. And some of that was just there were more openings. It was just easier to get easier layups. So that, I think, is a big key to his game, if he could continue to do that uh, and they can continue to play this way, I see no reason why he can't duplicate the season he had. And if he has a season like that again, like you said, give, and if Charlotte is still a pretty good team, sometimes there's a lag year on his reputations, and I think that might be enough for an all-star geek. One thing that's worth watching, though, is that he had off-season surgery. Apparently he was playing on a torn meniscus last year, which if he was playing on a torn meniscus, I really got to wonder when that happened and if he will if he has a fully healthy knee, how will how he'll play. I mean, that's a big concern. I mean, I, I'm seeing that as well with my favorite team star point guard, John Wall. I think his knees were really banged up and he's been slow coming back. But, you know, it's something to watch because Kemba is strength is his quickness and how quick he is at splitting the double teams. And really, again, they really that leverage crossover. His, yeah. And that, that great crossover. And they leverage his ability to kind of give it up and get it back a lot more last year with Batum. But if he loses some of that, he may lose some of his effectiveness as a player because he is pretty small. And even though he finished better at the rim last year, you have to wonder how that will hold up if he's not quite as, you know, bouncy off his feet. I'm trying to look up also Kemba Walker numbers. And did the NBA stats like change again? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a mess up site. Anyway, that's <laughs> so, Kemba. I think that answers that question. He's near his ceiling and might, might have fluctuations, but he's pretty close to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, again, a lot of it depends on Batum. Like you said, he was a much better player when Batum was in the game. You know, it's funny how much of a fill-in-the-gap guy Batum became, you know, and there are a lot of questions about whether Batum can duplicate that. You know, early in his career, he really was not always mentally engaged in the game. Last year, he was much more locked in. But sometimes I wonder if that sort of misses, and I've, and if I've as well missed in the past, sort of the purpose of a Batum. Uh, and I've sort of wanted to see more aggression when I'm not looking at the right thing. And his his real strength, I think, is just kind of as that connector style of a player. Clifford compared to Tracy McGrady, which I thought was a really lofty comparison, but I understand just the combination of, of size and playmaking is valuable even if maybe the player isn't quite as aggressive right agree entirely Batum's whole thing is just playmaking and doing all that small stuff he's that he's the classic stereotype oh he does all the stuff that's not in the box score type player because (laughs) he really does like you look at all the numbers last year and all the players that got better I mentioned earlier, Kemba Walker shot 41% from three when he was when Batum was on the floor 28% when he was off of it when um Marvin Williams was on the floor with him. He shot 40%. That went down a little when Batum was off of it. Just He made players better around him, and the Hornets were better as a result. So even though he might not be the most aggressive scorer, he's not putting up tw- he's not putting up 20, 10, and 5, but you know he doesn't need to do that because sometimes for him, 15, 10, and 7 is much better because he also helps Kemba get 30 and 10. One guy that's back that didn't miss last year and is – I think basically a free agent acquisition is Michael K. Gilchrist. And he missed, he only played seven games last year with the shoulder injury. And I think a lot of people, when that injury first happened, forecasted doom for the Hornets because they looked at him and they said, well, here's their only really great defender. Here's their a- athletic guy. And instead, they were much better without him. So now that he's coming back into the fold, like what, what does he have to do to, does he have to adjust his game, you think, to fit in with the way they play? Or what are we expecting from him now that he's back? I think they're going to slide him into what they planned on doing last year. Last year, they really wanted to run this Kemba Walker, Nicholas Batum, Kim, and Michael Kidd Gilchrist, uh, Marvin Williams, big man roster. And uh, they weren't able to do that because Kidd Gilchrist got hurt. Now this year, I think they're going to get to really implement that with uh, Batum at the two and Kidd Gilchrist at the three and Marvin Williams at the four. They're really going to be able to like guard just about anyone they want. The perimeter is just going to be practically unstoppable. And as far as offensively, he's always been a cutter. He's really good at cutting. Um, I'm curious if he's been trying to work on his jump shot, but one of the things I always wanted him to do, I want him to become a better ball handler because I always wanted him to be a player that could put the ball on the floor and get to the rim and, you know, and really enhance that ability because he's always been incredible finishing at the rim. It's one of his best skill sets. Yeah, I mean, the challenge, though, is that, and this is the thing I'm really looking to watch, is that Charlotte's offense is just so fluid, and the ball just moves so quickly last year. You can't have them holding it. Right, and but it, it, and also, if teams are sort of basically helping way off him, and he catches the ball, and if and he's not totally confident with his jumper yet, which I think is, a, I don't see how he could be. He just had shoulder surgery. That's not, it's not like he had knee surgery. He had shoulder surgery, and he's trying to rebuild his jumper. And he doesn't make a quick – it's hard to kind of make a quick move when the defender is standing so far off you. And so – and even it's hard to handle the ball and, and run that secondary pick and roll when they're just sliding under the screen. So how is he going to handle that? I think that's going to be an interesting issue because while his plus-minus was really high in the past, I think two years ago when he was healthy, he was the highest plus-minus player in the team. I sometimes wonder about players where they have one key big weakness. I think about this with Ricky Rubio a lot as well. And most of their plus-minus 
production comes because the team sinks when he's out, not necessarily that they thrive when he's in. I wonder if the conditions start to change there, and that does that plus minus start to change? And that I worry a little bit about that because, like you said, defensively they should be lights out with him now and Batum and Williams and their ability to switch two through four. That should be great. But offensively, I worry that Will K. Gilchrist in some way, even though he's a good cutter and can be a decisive player, just because he's such a poor shooter, will that just inhibit what they're trying to do? And that's a that's a key test. You know, two years ago, Clifford would often sit him in crunch time because of his shot and play. I forget exactly who he, he would replace him with, but um, was it Chris Douglas Roberts? I, I, I do remember um, that. Shoot, who was it? Was it Lance Stevenson? Well, it was two years ago, so or three years ago, when they made the playoffs, uh, they had they had another. Oh, Gary Neal, that's right. Oh, right. Gary Neal. So yeah, I remember that. So at the end of games, will Kid Gilchrist be on the floor, or will they go with someone like Bellinelli to get more offense? I think that's it's going to be interesting to watch that. I think. I think that's all very good questions worth asking. Uh, one thing about his jump shot that I, I the shoulder injury was just such a bummer because I was really excited for um, his jump shot coming into last season because. Before last year, um, he had gotten a much better at shooting mid-range shots, and I know that's not the best thing in the world. It's like, well, that's not a very efficient shot. It's like, well, he's showing an increase in distance in his shooting. And even when they're – like you obviously prefer these players to shoot threes, but when they have any type of jump shot at all, they become more efficient and they get become more of a threat. And that last year, when he was healthy for that seven games, he looked to take three-pointers when he had the opportunity. He didn't take a very many of them, but he still took them, which was also an improvement. And then the shoulder injuries, just both of them was like just such a disappointment. So I think it's very worth being concerned. It's like you have three or four guys who are all playing incredibly well, then you have someone that's not quite fitting on offense. It could It could really cause problems. I'm hoping it doesn't, but it really could. I'm looking at he shot uh, seven threes and hit three of them last year. So in seven games, so just about a three game. So I think we need to see a little bit more, obviously, before we know exactly what's going on there. Uh, right, the sample size was incredibly small, and just yeah. <laughs> like, when they went in, like, Hornets fans lost their minds. Like I can't, because he had just followed up a season where he didn't take a single one with actually attempting them. So oh yeah, that's true. He did. So are you guys gonna kind of have this? Uh, is Hornets Twitter gonna be overflowing with Kid Gilchrist made a three? Three gifts. Oh, they were like they were like going off last year when he made them. <laughs> he oh made boy. one and it it melted down. It was just we want to have a parade. <laughs> this changes everything. This one he's, jumper he's and be a... our superstar. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm excited to see him back because he is a really tough and dogged defender, and he's really fun on the break. Uh, up front, uh, who do you think is going to start and who do you think is going to play? There are a lot of guys up there. We talked about Hibbert. Cody Zeller is still around. I thought he had a pretty good year last year. There's Frank Kaminsky, who I think clearly showed that if he was really they, – they pass on better players to take him, but he can still contribute some rotation-wise. He's a capable NBA player. Yeah, he's not Miles Turner, Justice Winslow. I think they're going to never live that one down. But he played a little bit. Uh, they still have Spencer Hawes. So who is going to get – who do you see starting on opening night, and who do you see getting most of the minutes up front? Uh, I think their starting lineup is going to be Kemba Walker, uh, uh, Batum, Kid Gilchrist, uh, Marvin Williams. Then I think center. Right now, initially I would have said Cody Zeller, but there's some weird stuff with Cody Zeller's knee right now where he's not participating in practice, contact practice, because um, they're not really sure what's – 
they want to see how it responds. I'm not really sure what's up with that. So I think that means Roy Hibbert's probably going to start. I actually kind of think that would – I like that combination of the tough perimeter defenders on the wing that are able to switch and sort of able to protect Roy Hibbert, who's lunging at the basket. You know, even if Cody Zeller was healthy, I would think about just starting Hibbert with with those guys. So are you protecting him and getting the most out of him? And then use Zeller with the second unit and use his mobility to help cover for some of the poor defenders on that unit a little bit more. Um, I actually think that would that might be better for the team anyway, especially if you pair Zeller with Kaminsky uh, or Spencer Hawes. I, I think that, that may be a smarter play overall, uh, even even if Zeller was healthy. But yeah, that's a little bit of concern with his knee because they they definitely aren't that deep up front. They losing Jefferson, losing that safety valve, uh, and I'm not sure we can get a better a duplicate year from Spencer Hawes. That's a concern I'd have. If Hibbert is not the same player he was a couple years ago, where do they turn there? So I actually kinda like the idea though of Hibbert starting. I actually do too because He's that slow traditional center, and they were starting Jefferson a lot of last year, so it wouldn't be that much of a change. He'd just be like a defensive version of Al Jefferson. So, I, you know, I think that might be a good thing. So, but before we get to predictions, and we are going to get to predictions, and we're going to, we've, we're probably going to be very wrong about this team, or at least I am, um, but we'll see how that goes. We were all both very wrong about this team last year. Uh, this was the second part of uh, of Lindy's question. Talked a little bit about the future, which I think is a topic that we need to think about when we think about first the way the Hornets pursued last summer and then this year. Where realistically, like what what is the ceiling for this team over the next three years? I mean, was last year as good as it gets because of kind of the the all the veteran talent? No real great young player unless Kid Gilchrist really takes a jump in the wings. Was this as good? What is the goal for this team over the next three years? And was last year as good as it gets in that sense? The goal for this team over the next three years is really interesting because they've always been this team where we kind of look at the way they operate and they usually seem to look like they're making these short sided decisions. You know, they trade for Spencer Hawes, they trade away their lottery picks, they trade away draft picks. They seem to be making short sided decisions and building around this core and trying to build through free agency and trades and it's kind of worked for them it's getting them to the playoffs but we're not really sure where they're going to go but that said they do have a lot of flexibility in the future through cap space they didn't do any they didn't spend too much money last year the cap's going up so i feel like they believe that if they can they're going to try and build through that through that cap space whether it's through getting a disgruntled star there and trying to convince them to stay maybe signing someone that's was you weren't expecting to actually leave or go to a place like Charlotte. So I think that might be in their plans. As for their current players, I think they really believe in Batum, who he has a lot of miles on him, but he is youngish. He's probably right around in his prime right now, so they probably can get a good three to four years out of him. Uh, Kemba Walker's entering his prime. Kid Gilchrist is the big one. I feel like Kid Gilchrist is the thing that separates them from a second-round team that might get to the conference finals if they're having a great year versus a possible contender in another year. Like They would need Kid Gilchrist to, Kid Gilchrist to be that good a player, which we're not sure if he has that in him because we haven't seen enough of him. But he's really young, and he has a lot of talent, so that's what they're, they're probably hoping on right now. When I think about this team's future, I see them sort of – already been digging uphill and it reminds me a little bit of what I think the Wizards have gone through where you whiff on a draft or you get unlucky with your draft luck three or four times and you you miss out on Anthony Davis uh you you don't get that you draft 
we'll see about Cody Zeller, but you you don't you waste the pick on Noah Vonley that you could have had, or you give him to for Batum, but he doesn't develop. And the Kaminsky thing, missing out on Winslow and Miles Turner and Devin Booker and all the great players that they missed out there. It's sort of like you're kind of climbing uphill from there, and you can do. It sort of forces you into doing a lot of these moves that are immediate and just kind of shifting your focus. And you can kind of patch up a pretty good team. And the Hornets have patched up a pretty good team. But you're never going to be able to replace the chance to get, a, I think, a young talent on the level that they've missed out on through luck or missed or, or blown drafts. Uh, they're never going to get that chance back. And so they're sort of end up stuck in this, this middle ground. Now, being stuck in this middle ground is not a bad thing for the city of Charlotte. You know, they need to build up a fan base. And last year, I think, was a big step towards doing that. And I think there is such thing as non-binary success in this league. You know, you can be a successful team in a, in a market like Charlotte winning 45 games a year. And maybe one year you have a chance to make the conference finals if you're lucky. And I'm not even sure Charlotte is at that level, but you can be competent for a while and that's good for your market. And I think that may be the case in Charlotte, but it's going to be hard for them. You know, you say they didn't spend a ton of money this summer. They didn't spend as much as they could have, but they did hand out $120 million to Batum and $54 million to Marvin Williams. And Right. They didn't, I should have, I should clarify that. They didn't, they spent money on returning players, but they didn't go out and sign a big name. Or, like, they didn't go no. spend $70 million on Evan Turner. No. Well, they definitely didn't do that. And, <laughs> you know, so they, it's not like they they aren't they aren't totally flexible here. Like, they have most of their key players under contract. And, I mean, the other the, – the key selling factor I think they would be hoping for is that Clifford and the culture that's built will always be a draw. And as the NBA world gets flatter – that can be a benefit, you know, where someone will say that's a situation that has their shit together and they have a good coach and they get the, they have a good culture and that may appeal to a mid-tier free agent. It certainly appealed to Batum. He didn't really consider leaving. And that was sort of, in a sense, a free agent signing, you know, although it cost him a lottery pick. So it reminds me a little bit of what the Wizards are trying to do now, where they the Wizards miss on 2011 draft. They maybe miss on 2013. We'll see on Otto Porter and how he develops. They've traded lottery picks. They And so what happens is that the, the, main, the major asset cupboard is a little bare, and so you're kind of trying to build around the building blocks you do have and doing the best you can with veterans, but there is a, a glass ceiling you hit. And I sort of see that's where Charlotte is right now. And I don't know if 48 wins is as good as it gets, but I, it's going to be up there as far as I think as good as it gets unless Kid Gilchrist becomes an elite scorer, which I do not see happening. Right. Kid Gilchrist would have to just completely change into a different kind of player to really change this team. But really, like you said, there's nothing wrong with being one of those teams that wins 45 to 50 games every once in a while because, like you said, this team – they had to build up a fan base before last year's whip before they won game three last year. They had never won a playoff game since 2004 when they came back to the, when they came back to the city, they had never done, had any success of any kind. They were a joke. They were an NBA. They were the laughing stock of the NBA. When I joined uh, our Hornets uh, SB nation site, when we were still called Rufus on fire, no one wanted the right then editor Ben Swanson like commented out like basically like no one wanted to write there because no one wanted to write the whole write about the Bobcats. Yeah. They changed their name and all of a sudden he had like a fluctuation of people wanting to write about the team again. So while there might not be a content while they might not be contending for contending for a title anytime soon, this team is really built up to trying to build that fan base back and become a, a team that 
like NBA teams and fans respect again. Yeah, and in that market, I think that's important. I mean, sometimes there are some markets where if that's what you're doing, then you're wasting your time. I'm not sure Charlotte is one of those markets. Uh, I think that's a market where it was starting to get a little more exciting to go to Hornets games. If they can duplicate the season they had this year and have another playoff series, I think that'll really start to energize the fan base a little bit more. They have good guys that are easy to root for. Uh, they have a great again. The coaching is a big key. They have one of the, I think, one of the league's best coaches. He proved it last year, and that'll help. But you know, if we're if Hornets fans are dreaming a championship in the next few years, I, I'm not sure they may kind of be stuck in that NBA's middle for a while. And with that, let's get to predictions. You go first. Like, what are you thinking? Like, does this team return to the playoffs? Do they duplicate? How many wins are you looking at? I think they're going to tread water this year. I think despite the losses to the bench, I think this is still a really good team. I'm not entirely high on the rest of the East yet. A lot of them, a lot of the teams that got better also made moves that I kind of question. Like, for example, uh, teams that kind of would have competed for them for that four seed through six seed area last year, like the Pacers and Hawks this year. Um, they made moves like I wasn't very thrilled with giving the keys to Dennis Schroeder and Atlanta and I'm not very thrilled with putting Nate Millen in charge of the Pacers. So yeah. Teams that I initially would have like put right above them because they made moves such as signing Dwight Howard or just getting a healthy Paul George for a full season, I can't really trust right now. So I'm going to put Charlotte in that 46 win range. I think they're going to stay around where they were last year and just win a lot of games and be consistent. So you're looking at the four seed or the five seed? Somewhere around there, maybe six, depending on what the rest of the rest of the East looks like. Because if the re- if the East was as good as they were last year, then they'll probably be somewhere in the six seven range. But if they kind of regress like a lot of us are expecting them to do, then it'll probably be more in the 4-5. or five. I think they will not be better, obviously. They're, I don't think they're going to get better. No. Just tread. I, no, and I, I'm not sure they're quite going to tread either. I, I think you look at the shooting percentages of these guys will go down a little bit, and then you do losing Lynn and, and Lee and Jefferson will cost them a little bit. I think they did a pretty good job managing that i think they have a floor to make the playoffs i actually think they last year they were i believe ninth in defensive efficiency uh something like that and ninth in offense i look i think they can get to the top five in defense i think they have that sort of talent but i also think that their offense will slip to below average i I have a hard trouble seeing them matching their top 10 and offensive finish this year the league kind of knows what they're about now you've got kid gilchrist there so if you're looking at like a top five offense and maybe a 20th our top five defense and a 20th ranked offense that to me screams more like a 44 43 win team that kind of ekes out the six or seven seed and so which is still a solid team yeah i mean i don't think they're gonna miss the playoffs i think they're too well coached you know barring a batum injury i think they will they should make the playoffs they have an obvious floor they don't have i think the upside of some of these teams but i i I find just their core competency should keep them in the picture, but I, I think they're going to lose five wins or so off last year, or four wins, and I think they're going to be more in the 7-8 range rather than the 4-5 range. I think all that's really fair, and this is one of those teams where, depending on, like, if they won 52 games, I'd be surprised, but I could say, oh yeah, I could see that happening. Just everything kind of came together and everything they built off of last year. But they're also a team where if they win 40 games, I go, oh yeah, that made sense. They have their in, their health, their players that are usually injury prone got injured again, and their players that they had regressions in shooting. Just they're that kind of team where if they outside of total collapse, just really you can see them kind of doing anything. 
I really enjoyed watching this team play last year. I hope I like that city and their fan base. I hope that they're able to kind of maintain what they built and don't just fade away. I think it's important for the league to have these teams show that these teams that are relatively well managed but maybe don't have the star power can can still kind of hang. So I, I'm look looking forward to seeing the encore. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that Hornets fans are talking about right now as a big key to the season? Um, not that I can think of. They like their jerseys. <laughs> they do. They are nice jerseys. Yo, the, uh, those jerseys are fantastic. And didn't they come out with alternates recently, or am I mistaking them for another team? Uh, the last, the most alternates I can remember recently are the black sleeve journey, okay, jerseys they wore last year. What do you think about the big like Hornets buzzing noise that 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 sounds every time they make a bucket? Because I love it so much. It. It's it's so dumb, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely not what the old hide used to be, and the old the old buzzing noise that was made. But I, I like that they were able to restore that. And I got used to kind of hearing what's the name of their play by play guy, Eric something, right? Oh my god, he was hilarious. I just kind of got used to when they would score like uh, a big three, He his voice would jump. And it was the most exciting thing in the world. And then as the backdrop of him sort of exclaiming how great this three was, that buzzing noise would just buzz <laughs> over the loudspeaker. And so you could barely hear him. It was, it was a great league pass experience. Initially, I was really not a fan of him because uh, they went from a very professional guy, uh, someone that could, you know, traditional Steve Martin was the old Steve guy. Martin. Yeah. They tried to, they were very traditional with him. He was very professional. He only got excited during the exciting moments and everything. And this guy just, I, I knew his name last year. I, Eric Collins, Eric Collins. Yes. Collins. We used to like, we had a joke in Hornets tour. Where like we just randomly tweet out random things he would say. Cause like just, they wouldn't make sense out of context. <laughs> and they were really funny. Yeah. And he got so excited over the most minuscule things. Like it'd be a layup like a simple layup and he would act like they just won the NBA championship. And that great screen from Spencer Hawes. <laughs> Spencer Hawes. And he had that little like kind of uptick in his voice. It's great. Wow, you know, Kimba, he, he's dribbling the ball. Wow. wow. He, he just <laughs> dribbled that way. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that can get a little obnoxious over time, but uh, it was fun to kind of, it was a good avatar for this team's improvement and surprise last year. He just seemed genuinely stunned when, when they were doing good things and <laughs> pleasantly surprised. It was sort of a good microcosm of how that season went. And I, as I think about last year, I'll always have that image that image in my head of, of him exclaiming after like a, a second unit player hit a three and that big buzzing noise coming on the loud screen, the the really loud one that just felt like it was felt like it was like a drum pounding over and over and over again, really, really fast. My favorite uh, moment with him was, um, I want to say it was Marvin Williams. He hit a, or no, it was Troy Daniels. Troy Daniels hit this huge three pointer to win the game. And he yells out, how do you do? <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. So, so Eric, if you're listening to this, don't change. Uh, we, you oh, were, never change. You were, you were, you were the, entertainment. You were a thrill in their broadcast list here. All right. Chris Barnwall, thanks for coming on from At The Hive. Uh, you can follow him. You're on Twitter at Chris Barnwall, or am I, is there a different username? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Chris Barnwall. Um, you can also find my writing at, at The Hive. Yeah, you should also listen to our, uh, they have a podcast over there, I believe, the Locked on Hornets podcast. That's very good, uh, daily coverage. So that was the Hornets. Uh, I hope you guys uh, hung in there while Ben was not here off getting married and on his honeymoon. You should all congratulate him. Uh, next up, we're going to have the Hawks with Peachtree Hoops. Uh, really excited about that. And then we're kind of almost done. You know, we have 
Boston is after that. And then we start to get into the real heavy hitters as we kind of wound down this season preview into the year. So until next time, this is the Limited Upside Podcast. Oh, my God.